Hello the internet, this is Matt Ricardo and thanks again for downloading this episode of Matt Ricardo's London Varieties. Heavens to Betsy, this was a good show. If you were part of the sellout audience, then thanks so much for making it such a great night. If you didn't get a ticket, well, tickets are now on sale for the next show on April the 12th, so get your skates on. In this show, the live audience saw sets from the incredible Aaron Sparks, the mind-bending Luke Germay, and Cabaret Royalty, Frisky and Manish. But in this podcast, you'll hear a little taster of those performers who will focus mainly on my onstage interview with Graham Linehan. Graham has had a hand in pretty much all the great British comedy of the last couple of decades. He created and wrote Father Ted, Black Books, Big Train and the IT Crowd. He's also a very smart and very silly man. Hope you enjoy the show. Um, I try and start each show with a kick-ass act that's just going to come on, knock you down, get your jaws on the floor, and this is the perfect example of that. Please welcome onto the stage and into your hearts the incredible Mr. Aaron Sparks. Are you kidding me with that? Jesus. Good start? Yeah. yeah. Okay, now, um, again, who was here last uh, month? Right, so every month, um, I'm setting myself a challenge to learn a new trick just in the four weeks between the two shows. Um, so I'm going to tell you now what my trick to learn for next month's show is, and then I'm going to attempt the trick that I promised to learn. <clears throat> it's not been going well. So, okay, so um, first things first. By next month's show, April the 12th, get your tickets now, um, I, I, I thought I'm going to try and learn to juggle a, a, an object that I've never juggled before. You know, I've done balls, I've done clubs, I've done the boxes, I've, you know. Um, I've never juggled plates, and plates are a kind of nice old fashioned vaudeville kind of juggler's thing. So, I'm going to attempt to learn for you people uh, by April the 12th, in four weeks' time, a whole routine juggling plates. Yeah, many of you are right to not clap just yet. Um, but uh, if you were here last week, you remember that I uh, told you about a trick, um, a bit of a sort of famous kind of signature trick that I wanted to learn. I've been wanting to learn it for a long time. I thought this is the time to give myself a deadline. Um, the trick, well, actually, maybe I'll just show you my video diary instead. Oh, yeah. um, so it's a couple of days after the first night of Okay, so it's really hard, um, and I can't do it. Um, okay, I'm gonna try. Um, there's a big, there's a big leap between being able to do it a couple of times and doing it every single time. I can't do it every single time. I can't even do it most of the time. But I get three tries. Okay, if by the third try I still don't get it, then we get three more tries. <laughs> we might not have time for Graham Linehan. Um, Okay, may I have the props, please, again? And I am never doing that trick again. <laughs> We've got it on video now, that's a showreel, that's fine. Um, so, wow, that fucking worked, I'm stunned. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the next act we have for you is a bit of a cracker. Um, he's a, a bit of a legend in, in the magic world. Um, he has been before, well, he's been doing magic since he was 10. He is, I think it's fair to say, uh, the country's leading mind reader. He has written 33 books about magic. He is one of the minds behind Darren Brown and Chris Angel. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the astonishing Mr. Luke Jamais. Well, good evening. How often have you wondered what your husband, wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, but as they really do say in art school, use the space, make the drawing nice and big. I don't normally do thank yous at any point in the show, uh, but I do want to thank you. Uh, and not just for being nice to me, which you have, but for something that is much more important. In an entertainment landscape that is scarred by reality television and pop princesses, the more people like you that come out and support nights like these, and the more people like Matt that create these nights for people like you that want them, the more likely it is that Paris Hilton will get struck by fucking lightning. Before we go into the interval, um, I'm gonna do something that uh, if you were here last month, you know I do every month. I'm gonna talk to you about one of my heroes, someone that you probably won't know. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bobby May. Bobby May. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Bobby May was born Ludwig Mayer in 1907, and he was arguably America's greatest juggler. He performed his first professional booking aged 15 and spent the rest of his life touring vaudeville theatres, circuses, nightclubs, and skating shows where he'd do his whole juggling act while ice skating. He was an immensely skilled technical juggler. He could do up to eight balls regularly performed a trick where he would juggle five balls by bouncing them off a drum on the floor. He did this while standing on his head. <laughs> Kinda makes my cigar box shit look rubbish, doesn't it? <laughs> but what made him great was his onstage persona. As you can see, that is, he was a dapper son of a bitch. Half boy next door, half elegant gentleman, he was a charmer, and that's what I liked about him, his style. He would never bill himself as a juggler. On the posters outside the theatre, it would say, Bobby May, and then in small letters underneath, or he may not. <laughs> He'd start his act by sauntering on stage wearing a beret and playing a harmonica. And then once he'd kind of confused the audience, he'd put them down, start juggling and bring the house down. His signature trick was his finale. It, it wasn't massively spectacular, but it was beautiful. He would juggle five balls. He would throw them, one by one, high into the air in a perfect arc. He would let them all bounce just once on the floor. He would catch each one, one by one, in his top hat. The last ball would bounce on his head, get caught on the back of his neck, then he'd roll it down his back and catch it in the top hat held between his legs as he did a front somersault off stage. <laughs> he died in 1981, having achieved something that very few jugglers ever do. He had been a headline act. In 1938, he made the short film that you're about to see. Vaudeville theater owners realized how much cheaper it would be to pay a performer just once to make a film of their act, and then they could show the film over and over instead of booking the performer. The acts jumped at the chance for a bigger than normal payday and willingly took part in the death of the circuit that was their bread and butter. 
So what you're going to see is his act in a short film that was essentially at his gravestone. That's what ended his career. So, uh, Bobby May. Please welcome. Uh, he is a man that's had a hand in pretty much every good bit of TV comedy in the last 20 years. Um, he wrote and co wrote Father Ted, the IT crowd, Blackwoods, Big Train, Stephen Edmund, Graham Linham. <laughs> Happy International Women's Day, ladies. Yeah! Oh, See you later. That was so cheap. <laughs> I noticed no one else said it. I thought I'd like step it. in. <laughs> so um, I don't. <laughs> We're going to talk about um, briefly about your career, how you got to where you are now, and what it's like to be where you are now. Can we talk a little bit about, a bit about Bobby May first? Yes, you may. Because uh, because uh, I just I just thought it was great the way the mother said, "Now, Bobby, you ain't gonna throw things around." And yeah, I'll try, Ma. You didn't try very hard, did you? <laughs> The thing is, you'd think that was like a really bad bit of sort of crowbar scripting. But as my wife, who is here, will tell you, that's exactly what it's like living with a juggler. <laughs> is that not true? My mother used to say the same thing, but uh, about masturbating. Just, <laughs> you, you've lost so many jobs that way. <laughs> I'd be like, I'll try, Ma. The door closes. Then the kids are throwing snowballs at you. <laughs> 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 um, so, so I know we, we, we've spoken previous to this, and you've expressed an interest to not really talk about, you know... No, no, only in the sense that uh, the, there's a, you know, so many interviews with Arthur where we go through the whole how we, how we started writing and stuff, and, and it's just a bit, a bit kind of exhausting. Sure. But, uh, but I will answer any question oh, you have, though. It. Yeah, yeah, no, no, anything. <laughs> You're the boss of me. <laughs> You're kind of the boss of me. Um, so we'll, we'll do it really quickly. Um, so, you... Um, Actually, I mean, what I've got is that you met Arthur um, working for Hot Press magazine. Yep, that's right. You were both writers on that, and then you started submitting. No, he wasn't a writer. He was a kind of art layout guy. You oh, see, okay. this is this is the kind of boring thing that's going <laughs> to kill the audience. But uh, <laughs> but no, um, yeah, he did that, and, and he used to. It, these were it, the, actually there is one interesting thing about it. These this was pre-computers, so if you had a mistake, uh, Saturday evenings at Hot Press would be spent oh, there's a mistake, and you'd have to go in, type out the real word, like, let's say it's and, and someone's written und, and you go in, you write down and, you print, out, print it out, cut it out the word and, and stick it to the page. That's how magazines were done, when oh, I was still alive. <laughs> yeah. You know? I remember sending out VHS tapes of my act to agents and 8x10s. And I taped Seinfeld and Larry Sanders by lying on the floor and waiting for the show to end and taking out the tape, putting in yeah. the Larry Sanders tape at exactly the point the last one ended, you know? And people tell you, slag off computers. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to that, then. <laughs> so, so, but what I don't know is, is your journey to that point. 
So, I mean, how young were you when you knew you wanted to write? Uh, well, it wasn't so much that. It was more... Um, uh, I saw Woody Allen was voted Sexiest Man of the Year <laughs> in Cosmopolitan, and I said, wow, he's kind of bad-looking. So maybe there's something to do with being funny that might attract women. And so I, I used to copy his mannerisms and his style, and, and uh, I used to do debates, and I would, I would copy whole swathes of his, uh, of his columns, you know, um, for the New Yorker. Uh, which was fine until I started calling pe people, you know, just saying oi and, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> Sorry, he would never say oi, but you know what I mean. And um, uh, so my, my kind of debates were just excuses for loads of jokes from the viewpoint of a, of a New York Jewish man. Uh, but, and still no one, no one spotted that I was, uh, I was doing it. So, um, you know, and then, and then I got to Hot Press and, and uh, it was the first time I met people who were really funny, who thought I was funny. And, and, uh, and it was just a, there was a certain point when um, I just kind of thought, well, you know, other people do it. Why, what is stopping us from trying? And so uh, I was over in the UK to try and be a music journalist and that wasn't working out. So I said to Arthur, come on over and we'll, we'll see if we can give this a go. And one day we were watching Smith and Jones and we noticed there were loads of writers in the credits. And we thought, ah, they probably take submissions. So this is exactly the story I didn't want to tell. <laughs> anyway, uh, and uh, we, we, ha we wrote about seven sketches and we handed them in and we were, we were called in and we were very excited. And, and I remember the sketches were on a table in reception and Griff, uh, Griff had, had, had been looking through them and there were tick marks on, on all the sketches, or three tick marks on the sketches. And I was like, fuck man, you know? And, uh, and uh, that was it, really. Everything after that has been, you know, piece of piss. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just turn up. <laughs> okay, so here's... I've got, I've got essentially one, one thought about your work, which I'm going to... But, you know. It better be right then. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that all the sitcoms that you've written, all the, the your, your your key sort of body of work, all the key characters in those shows are all sympathetic. There's no. I thought you were going to say simpletons, <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah, also there, true. There is one simpleton in every. <laughs> but they're all sympathetic. They're all. There's no douchebags. There, there's. There's no character that everyone hates. That you know, as an audience, um, they're all heartwarming characters. They're characters that, that, that an audience warms to. And I think you have that in common with sort of maybe American sitcoms, things like Parks and Recreation and The Office, where I, as a viewer, I look forward to to spending time with these nice people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Except I don't know. I to me the model was always Faulty Towers, which where it's not uh, all that all that stuff is kind of all that stuff is kind of accidental. You know, I mean, I mean, all any any. No, no, no. I, it may well be true, but but the warmth uh, comes from you know not wanting the audience to hate the characters. You know, you, you have to kind of like them if you want to spend time with them. But you know, Basil Faulty, you could say he's a sympathetic character in that he can't really even have a cup of tea without life 
hitting him. And, uh, you know, he may be horrible and obnoxious, but you still, he's the one you, you, you feel sorry for. And you, and you, even when he's whacking the hell out of Manuel, you still, you still feel for him more than anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's terrible. Somehow he's still a victim rather than an aggressor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I only realized, you know, when, when John Cleese talked about it in an interview, he said, it's about a man who, who, who's terrified of his wife. And I thought, wow, I didn't know. I thought it was about a guy who ran a crazy hotel. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Have you heard the stories about the, the guy that Fulton Towers is based on? A little bit. I saw, saw Graham Chapman's autobiography recently, and I saw a bit about it. I read something that, he's, that when, when the guy that Basil is based on died, his widow was in the local press saying he was nothing like this. This is started. And then they started getting letters. The paper got letters from people that had been to the hotel going, no, he's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, so, so you just sent stuff to Smith and Jones, and that's not a path anymore, or is it? That's what? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it is. There's probably shows out there. There's some shows out there that you think, oh, well, that's not very good. Um, well, they're the perfect shows to send stuff to, because, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for good stuff. And often, often you'll find very, very good performers um, at the mercy of, you know, uh, not great writing sometimes, you know. So, so I'd say if you think you can do it and you know what a script looks like, which most people do, then give it a shot and send it to a show where you see, you know, more than five contributors, say. And don't send it to the stars, send it to the producer. And tell the producer they're brilliant. Look up IMD, IMDB, see what the producer did previously and tell them you loved it. <laughs> I see you're doing this new show. Yeah, it's good, but I really like the last show you did, you know, and that'll kind of, uh, and things, little, little things like that. It's, it's, but people, people have this inbuilt, um, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons that writing is hard, and it is hard, is, is, is that you, you're constantly, um, have, you constantly have all these voices in your head telling you're, you, you're, you're terrible. And, and every time you, light a, you write a line or a plot point or, or something changes in the script and you have to do it in a slightly clunky way, your brain says, well, that's it. You're going to have to stop writing because that's, <laughs> you know, you can't do it, you know. So you have to, ha you're in a constant fight with your brain, which is going, well, this is just terrible. You're an idiot. Um, to, to get stuff onto paper, you know. But if you can get past that, which is the hardest part, because people say that, oh, I can't write because I have writer's block. Writer's block is writing. <laughs> the, the, they, don't, they, don't, they don't pay me for sitting around going, no, 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 no. They, they, they pay me for the moments when I'm like this. That's what you get paid for. And that's most of the time, unfortunately. Do you, do you respond well to deadlines? Do you need that deadline? Yeah, deadline? I need deadlines. I need to be paid. I can't do anything on spec. I need someone to say, I want this by blah, 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 and I'll give you this much money. And then I'm like, oh, God, I better do that. You know? But if it's kind of like an airy, fairy, arty thing, It'll never get ridden. <laughs> I, I, I like I like the whole, the old the, the the you know the hack the the guy with the with that hat on you know with the thing in the label writing down with a cigarette in his mouth and hitting his deadline. I like that view of a writer, but um, and I kind of need that kind of journalistic um, uh, pressure uh, or nothing gets done. Nothing gets done. And I told you this would be boring. <laughs> is it boring? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, what do you know? Um, so, I mean, the obvious question is, how do you set about, you know, writing, for example, an episode? Well, uh, for, first of all, I, I, the thing about it is not to think in terms of an episode. Think in terms of a series. 
Uh, the, the hardest thing, first of all, is to get the three or four characters that will talk to each other and be interesting together. That's really hard. And you have to, uh, you know, it took me, took me a couple of years of really, really thinking about it before uh, I got the IT crowd guys together. And even then, I felt that I started writing too soon. And the first series was us trying to find our feet. And uh, I wish I'd prepared a little bit more before that. But um, once you get those characters together, the next thing to do is to try and think of ideas that suit that kind of milieu or that situation. And you write them on cards. This is what I do. I write them on cards, individual cards. And I try and get, uh, I try and write about 100 big set piece moments. You know, just something that seems like I, like I had, for ages I had, Roy gets a, a massage and, and the masseuse kisses him on the bottom. And I, and, I thought, and I thought, okay, that's something. And I put that to one side. And then, you know, and you, and you write all these ideas that just seem funny in a kind of general way. And also as many visual ideas as you can. You know, things that, not things that people say, but things that happen. And you write them down on cards. And also then you write down things that people say, funny lines. You know, maybe the, one of those ideas gives you the idea for a funny line. This isn't, it didn't happen this way, but... Roy saying, that man kissed me on the bike rack. That's kind of like a funny line that, that, that you might think of because of that idea. And you write that down on a piece of card. And eventually what you have is a whole kind of floor filled with cards, right? And you kind of notice, oh, that's set in a, uh, that's a misuse one. So maybe I could, maybe this one to do with the gym will go with this one. And you put it over there. And, and by doing this and assembling little piles and seeing what goes with each other, stories start to suggest themselves. And, uh, and at that stage, you find the one that's most exciting, that one, I like that one. You take it and you sit down and you write down a one to 10 of what happens in the, in the show. Um, and still, by that stage, it's gonna be loose, it's gonna be things that don't work. And you just have to keep working on it and keep working on it until it, until it, um, uh, it feels like a story. Um, and you gotta make sure that, you know, you, you, might be nice to know what the what the first scene is going to be, um, and once you've done that, you're able to begin writing, and only then should you begin writing. But that's for me. Other people, I think they can write and see where it goes. I like to plan. You know, there's, there's a few ways into into it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, I think I think we're going to show a couple of clips now. Okay. Um, we're going to show a couple of clips from Big Train. Um, we're going to show uh, my favourite sketch and Graham's favourite sketch. Um, my one is first. I believe, Minister, that the Eagle-Eyed Super Train will revolutionise train travel in the new century. London, Edinburgh in super fast time. That's great. It can get from London to Edinburgh. I haven't seen that in years. I just love the the way they both grapple with it and the the long looks at each other. I mean, yeah. the obvious question is how how did that come about? How did that idea form? Uh, oh gosh, I could I I can't remember really. Um, well, you have to. Um, well, I'll t I can tell you a little bit about the way we wrote Big Train, which was we would, uh, we would, we 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 uh, we didn't have much money, so we'd write a sketch about. Um, uh, we'd heard, for instance, the sealed knot. Uh, we could hire them, so we we had the sketch, you know, set in the in that war. What what war is that? The Civil War, the English Civil War. Is that it? The yeah. one they do? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had a we had a sketch that was set there. You can. That's how much research we did. <laughs> And, um, and, and so we'd go, well, we have all these guys, so we should write a few more sketches. So we wrote, wrote about 10 sketches, uh, loosely based around a kind of war thing, um, using those 
extras and stuff, you know. And, and it was the same with business suits. We had we had them in, in a couple of sketches of business, so we wrote loads of sketches about businesses. And, and, and what would happen would be often, like with the Civil War one, for instance, the main sketch we wrote, which was a kind of parody of Zulu with chickens instead of Zulus, um, which ended with them going, bop, 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 and them looking up and them going, they're saluting us, you know. But, <laughs> But it uh, it didn't really it didn't really work. It was just too it was too silly, believe it or not. And um, uh, but all the other sketches, all the kind of subsidiary sketches we wrote, they ended up on screen. They were some of them were, were really good, and we were really happy with them. And that that could be exactly how that how that happened. Okay, so we're going to look at... It's, it's so unglamorous, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's the thing. I you know actually that leads me to a slightly larger point, which is you know there's a big kind of. Uh, Vogue at the moment for um, uh, character sketches, you know? It seems to be that everybody thinks that uh, sketch shows have to be characters every week, which I really hate because uh, Python didn't do that, you know? And it seems kind of, uh, seems kind of you know, lazy. I mean, I, 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 Little Britain started it off and did it really well. I directed the pilot of, of, of Little Britain. But, uh, but, but I felt that other shows took the lesson, took the wrong lesson from it, which was, oh, we have to do the same character every week, and he does their catchphrase, and then in a slightly different situation, it seems a bit lazy. But the thing is, I used to say it to people, I used to say, well, why do you do that? And they said, well, we 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 don't have money for for different costumes and stuff like that. And it's like, well, you know, what you do is, you, you, if you're shooting in a swimming pool, you write ten jokes about a swimming pool and stuff, and. That's another little, I don't know, I thought that might be handy if people are planning a sketch show. <laughs> I got a round of applause for the other bit of technical advice. Yeah. No, 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 no. You missed your chance. <laughs> Big Train kind of came, I guess, at a time when the fast show was the king of kind of... Yeah, and we were trying to do the opposite of that. it was complete opposite, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Have faces or really that many yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, when everyone's doing something, do the exact opposite, yeah, and then you'll stand out. Okay, we're going to watch uh, your favourite sketch now. Yeah, I love this sketch. When I wrote this sketch, um, uh, I have to say, I don't know how to say it, but it was my idea. And, uh, and I, um, I think I laughed for the entire day. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just, I would tell it to Arthur in different ways. <laughs> but I, I love this sketch. Okay, let's watch it. I hope it's the right one. <laughs> So many things I love about her. I love how, he, how nice he is. It looks like he's going to, he's going to be such a great boss. And, uh, and also the way uh, Simon, when Simon ran down, <laughs> Simon ran down to do the thing, and he didn't have to run down, but he did. He ran down to, to do the shot out the window, and uh, and and he was the one who took his shoe off. And put it, <laughs> that really sells it, you know. <laughs> what, what, what's, what strikes me about it is the way Mark Heap sucks the spoon is a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> it does make me a bit... Yeah. Yeah, you begin to feel that fear of spoons. Um, so but how did he get through his whole life? <laughs> <laughs> He's that sensitive to it. How did he get through his whole life without once encountering a spoon? <laughs> we, took, we, took, we took the rest of the day off after that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so, Mark Heap, um, I would be remiss if I didn't just sort of crowbar this in. Um, Mark Heap, who is in Big Train, um, and you probably know from lots of other things as well, um, street performer. Um, when I first arrived at Covent Garden to learn my trade, he was just leaving. He was a juggler. He did a juggling act uh, in, uh, called The Two Marks, and, that's, and they were the, the act that I saw that showed me where I could earn a living, where I could start my career. So that's a weird sort of link. Oh, right, okay. Um, so all your stuff, it's kind of grown up and silly at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it's these very silly, very surreal situations, but set in very naturalistic real worlds. Yeah, Big Train was, was an experiment along those lines. We, we thought if you could get a very, very silly idea and play it as realistically and naturalistically as possible, the silliness of it might become so pronounced that you'd get the giggles. That was the kind of reasoning behind it. And so it's why we re- let some sketches run for a very long time, which w- was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> so, um, because we thought the accumulative, the kind of thing of, wow, these people are really... Like, we, we, we had a rule, no jokes. We wouldn't have any jokes. So we had a sketch about Hall and Oates uh, being called in to, to, uh, to kind of police a very dangerous estate in London. And, uh, and they're just not very good at it because they're Hall and Oates and they don't really have any... They don't have any skills or anything. So there were no jokes. There were just pictures of, like, they'd, they'd be walking along, and they'd go, oh, look at that. And there'd be a, t- there's a turd on the ground. And they'd, go, oh. and they'd put on a little plastic glove and pick it up and put it, and put it in a bin. And that was it, you know. But <laughs> Kevin was kneeling down with, with shoes in front of his knees to play oats. <laughs> or is it Hall? I don't know. Well, Hall and Oates aren't even that well known. I know, I know. It's a weird choice. But yeah, it was just if we present this as realistically as possible, then the ridiculousness of it being Hall and Oates will feel even, even worse. I'm actually in one scene as an angry counselor, as an angry uh, member of the public going, What do they do? <laughs> Still available on DVD. (laughs) Is it a conscious thing that all of your work appeals to the whole family? Not quite. Um, Not quite. It's hard to explain. My favourite comedy, the comedy that really rings a bell for me, is the comedy that I was just about allowed down to see when I was 12. You know? It was like, oh, okay, let them watch the Pythons. And, you know, or let them watch Faulty Towers and stuff. And, and, And those are the moments where me and my dad really connected, you know? So I just like that type of thing. I like it's a little bit naughty, but not so naughty that, you know, the father has to get out to make, oh, oh make a cup of tea, you know? <laughs> so no jokes about things that are, you know, really uncomfortable or unpleasant. Um, there's been a kind of vogue for dark comedy and, and I like uh, some of it, but my favorite stuff is, is stuff where, I'll give you a really, really good, actually, this is a really good example. I also think it's really challenging you know, to, to write a joke that hits adults, doesn't offend anyone, but is still quite, you know, quite strong. There's a really great example in Malcolm in the Middle. It's one of my favourite examples of this. I always, I always talk about it. And what it is, is the father in Malcolm in the Middle, I don't know if you know the show, it's about a family with, yeah, three, three boys. It's never on, you can't get it on DVD. So that's why I, I download it, because I can't... I would... I would I, I would I download it because I can't buy it, you know. So, but if, it, if they release it, I'll buy it. But anyway, the father is talking to the youngest kid who's about, I don't know, eight or something. 
And the kid's coming in, he's, he, he looks a bit depressed, and the father says, uh, you know, what's wrong, you know? And he goes, well, oh, there's this girl in school, and she doesn't like me, you know, and I really like her, you know? And the father says, I'll talk to her. <laughs> Who couldn't like you? You're a, you're a wonderful kid, I'll talk to her, I'll talk to her. Cut to this eight-year-old girl walking along the street with her books like this, and the father in a car beside her, <laughs> driving along. <laughs> And he's going, get in the car! Get in the car! And he goes, I have sweets! <laughs> and, and, and that's a show that's on at 6.30. And, you, and, and, and it's tackling one of the worst, most appalling things that you can have. But it does it in such a, in such a genius way that everybody can laugh at it. That, that, and that's, that, to me, that's, that's an achievement and it's something to aim for. It's too easy to do some, some things. It's too easy to write something that makes Dad stand up and make a cup of tea. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess going with that, um, what else do you currently enjoy? Do I currently enjoy? Yeah. Eastbound and Down. Yeah. That's amazing. I don't know if you know that. Danny McBride. Uh, it's a very, very funny show about a very obnoxious man, but they... They do a brilliant thing of creating a terrible person and making you love him every week. That's kind of the opposite of what I was saying your work is like. I was saying your work is all the main characters. Yeah, maybe that's why I like it. Opposite, maybe yeah. that's why I like it, because uh, they do something that's also difficult. Right? But, it's, but I see a lot of dark things where someone starts up horrible, ends up horrible, and there's no journey or interest in it. But, but Danny McBride really knows how to make you, you know, cry sometimes, you know. And it's super strong. It's really strong. The... the, the the comedy is sometimes very harsh, you know, but it still still wins you back, you know. So that um, there's very little. I mean, you know, I still pine, I still pine for Seinfeld, yeah. you know, and and The Simpsons when it was great, and um, uh, you know, there's not much at the moment. I think. Oh, Always Sunny. That's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is again really dark, but handles it beautifully. So all my examples are con completely contradicting what I just said. But, <laughs> but very good, very good shows. Um, I, I, I've read that you use a piece of software called Freedom. Yeah. It sounds the worst thing in the world. No, what, why? Well, it cuts off the internet. Yeah. You, no, geez, you, you need things like that. You need things like that if you're a writer. You, you're the same machine, the same machine that you write on also has access to billions of pictures of naked women. <laughs> billions of pictures. And you're supposed to sit there and, and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write, I'm going to write. <sighs> Thinking about, you know, little Bobby, Bobby May. Bobby May or May not. Oh, okay, okay, we'll sit, we'll sit down. We won't, we won't masturbate. We'll, 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 we'll. <laughs> so, you know, and, and not only that, but, but also um, every bit of knowledge <laughs> in the world and every interesting thing. Today, someone, I, I found a picture of ants drinking trans, uh, gel so that you could see the, the, their bodies changing colour, you know? It's like, oh, would I, would I rather face my own inability as a writer? <laughs> or, or would I rather just watch the most interesting things in the world, you know? Did you see yesterday the penguin can? Oh, who saw a penguin cam? Yeah. Someone sent me this link to it's just it's a webcam in the penguin enclosure of San Diego Zoo. It's fabulous. It's just penguins <laughs> right up close to the camera, looking at you and quacking. And I did that. So it's a bit like chat roulette for penguins. It's, <laughs> penguin chat roulette. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to ask you. Uh, yeah. Um, 
So, at some point in your life, you, I would imagine, in some way, dreamt of being where you are now. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, don't mean on this stage. <laughs> scum. You big know. heart around With me. a big heart. <laughs> But it wasn't a man. <laughs> you can be what you need to be, Glenn. Uh, no, no, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's going okay. It's going okay. So, my question is, you've achieved a massive amount of success and respect. Is it like you thought it would be? Uh, I, I thought I'd be happier about going to award ceremonies. <laughs> That's become a bit of a pain in the arse, especially the comedy awards. <laughs> You know, we've never been nominated for a comedy award for the IT crowd. Never Jeez. been nominated. Not even Best New Comedy. <laughs> tell, tell the world. <laughs> but, you know, it's like all that. The, the thing I've kind of realized is that the, 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 the aim should be, and if you're not interested in this, you shouldn't do it, I guess, but the aim should be to have a good day during the day, to work and to enjoy the work. That's, that's the aim. And... Uh, sometimes I get there and sometimes I don't. I'm working on something with Steve Delaney at the moment, Count Arthur Strong. Ooh. I don't know if anyone knows Count Arthur Strong. Yeah, yeah. But that is going to be very funny. And he's a funny, funny man. So I know my days are going to be wonderful. And that's, yeah. that's what I aim for. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yep, I'm, I'll have that. So I guess to, to wrap it up, um, kind of boring, pressy questions. Season five of IT Crowd? Uh, uh, a one-off? A one-off, a special, I think, just to wrap things up and say goodbye to everybody. Because Richard's in a Ben Stiller movie and, and Chris is, is doing, you know, whatever thing he's doing at the moment. <laughs> Catherine's pregnant. Uh, you know, it's just a, it's, 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 I, and it's my fault for leaving it so long, but, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I always feel get out before people get bored. You know, or pe get out before people, people may think they want another series. <clears throat> but that might be the series where it all goes to hell, and, and you want to leave on a high note, I think. Yeah. Well, Which we won't do now. I think we will do that. <laughs> um, I think we're going to wrap it up, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together, make a lot of noise for our headline act, the astonishing Frisky and Manish! Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's wicked to be here. I'm Lily Allen. And I uh, thought I'd start with a song uh, from my first album. Uh, so yeah, this is, uh, this is a song about where I'm from. That's, that's not how the song goes. It starts with like Oh, that. perfectly marvelous to be sharing the stage with you tonight, Lily. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, who are you? I'm Noel Coward, obviously. <laughs> now, I think your songwriting shows promising originality. I really do. But I just think you lack something in the delivery of your songs. Um, would you like me to show you how one sells it's a, a tune? It's all right, actually. We're just going to get another pianist. So if you I was bringing this into my bike all day because it took away my license. It does get me down, and I feel okay because the sights I'm seeing are priceless. Everything seems looks it should, but everyone was going behind doors. A fellow looking dab as it was slap right, he had to pimp in his crack off. <laughs> you might love you, my brown walking round London town. Suns and sky, oh why, oh why, not to be anywhere else. Suns and sky, oh why, oh why, not to be anywhere else. Look with your eyes, things in nice, but if you twice, you'll see all lies. Do you see? Not what I was, um, no. 
I was, oh. <laughs> there was a little old lady walked down the road, strongly back from Tesco. He was sitting at lunch at the park. Yes, it's called Alfresco. A boy comes along to offer a head before it's time to accept it. It's row over the head, doesn't get you dead, could have got a little jewelry and wallet. <laughs> you might love, you might frown. Walking round London all together. Suns and sky, oh, why, oh, why, don't be anywhere else. Suns and sky, oh, why, oh, why, don't be anywhere else. If you look with your eyes, everything seems nice. But if you look twice, you did so lies. That's city life. It's city life, but it's witty life. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. We are Frisky and Manish. There was a few little uh, sketches to get you into the zone of what we do, I suppose. Uh, if you haven't by now figured out what that is, it is that we uh, teach you about pop songs. We are pop educators and we are sort of indicating some of the hidden meanings within pop songs, things you maybe didn't realise about what people were saying when they released certain songs. You have been just gorgeous. And this is our last song for you this evening. And we couldn't possibly leave you on such a high. So we're going to revisit a song that you will all know, but you may not know that originally it was written for the musical Blood Brothers. Let me set the scene. Imagine somewhere cold and gray and rainy. Okay, so that's Liverpool. Now, imagine a woman in a tabard.
And that's about it for this month. But before we go, a couple of quick thank yous. Big thanks to Kirsty at Sounds Wild for producing the podcast and the British Comedy Guide for hosting it. Also, of course, thanks to all the performers in the show and to Rian, Riri and everyone at the brilliant Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. If you want to see more of me, I'll be performing my one-man show, Three Balls in a New Suit, at the Brighton Festival this coming May. I'll be at the Brighton Comedia on Monday the 7th and Thursday the 17th of May, and you can buy tickets for that at comedia.co.uk. Matt Ricardo's London Varieties will return on Thursday, April the 12th, with another amazing lineup, including time-travelling magicians Morgan and West, Straight from the Royal Variety performance, The Boy With Tape On His Face, the amazing Paul DeBeck, and in performance and in conversation, the legendary Lenny Bage. And, and, there will be tap dancing. Go to mattricardo.com to get your tickets. Remember, the last show did sell out. Also, I am on Twitter and Facebook, so come say hi if you feel like it. But until then, thanks for listening. That was your London Varieties. Matt Ricardo's London Varieties. Yay!